Hi everyone, this is Harrison Goodale, co-founder of Sustain Music and Nature, and welcome to Songscapes. Today, Charles Copland speaks with Matthew Nelson, musician and executive director of the Arizona Trail Association. Growing up surrounded by public lands out west, Matthew has always been drawn to the natural world. His love of music has accompanied him through his exploration of the Grand Canyon and resulted in the collaborative musical trio called Unktukwa. To kick things off, we hear a bit about how he got his start in conservation. The Arizona Trail is an 800-mile path that starts at the U.S.-Mexico border and then ends at the Utah border throughout the entire state of Arizona. It uh, connects mountains and canyons and deserts and communities and people through some of the wildest, most inspiring landscapes in the West. And for those that are meeting you for the first time, what is your personal, spiritual, and professional relationship to the Arizona Trail? Mm. Well, uh, I dedicate most of my current life to the Arizona Trail as the executive director of the Arizona Trail Association, sort of the nonprofit organization that helped build and now maintains and protects this 800-mile trail. Um, but my connection to it started much, much earlier. Uh, I just found it by accident once uh, out on a, an adventure with some friends. We were riding mountain bikes on dirt roads in the Santa Rita Mountains, south of Tucson. And I found a, a placard, you know, like one of those uh, Carsonite signs, a brown flexible fiberglass sign that's used for trail marking with an Arizona Trail symbol on it. And I'd never seen that before. And I thought, wow, there's an, a trail that goes through the entire state of Arizona in my backyard. I had no idea. Uh, and I grew up near the John Muir Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, that part of the Sierra Nevada. So I was familiar with long distance trails. And so I started exploring the Arizona Trail, uh, mostly on foot, mountain bike. It's probably back in the 90s. Uh, and at some point, the trail just ended. Like I was on a, having a good day, enjoying this trail, and the trail just ended in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, well, this trail sucks. So I went back home and got in touch with the organization. I was like, what's the story with the trail ending, you know, just in the middle of the desert? What's the plan? And they said, well, we still have like a hundred more miles to build to finish the Arizona trail from Mexico to Utah. You should help us. And I did. And it was transformative. Wow. What a cool story. So it was just, it was like your kind of life's work happened sort of accidentally. Exactly. Probably. I mean, no I know such, you do no a such thing as accident, work. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow, that's very cool. Now, were you? So, I'm going to ask you a question right now. You're you're a great guest for Songscapes because you are right at that intersection of music and nature, and, and we're going to talk a lot about your music. But I'm curious with your relationship to nature. Did you sort of have before? You say no accidents, but before that that occurrence, did you have that kind of relationship? to the land and did you have or have you since if you want to modify the answer of what you would have said then had that sort of public land moment awakening mm. i feel really fortunate because i grew up really immersed by nature 
I grew up, you know, surrounded by public lands and some of the, you know, largest landscapes in, in the West. So uh, I was born in the Owens Valley, uh, Payahunadu, it's called in the Owens Valley language. And it's this little valley that exists between two 14,000 foot mountain ranges, the Sierra Nevada to the West and the White Inyo Mountains to the East. And so whenever I literally left my house, I was in sagebrush and a little bit higher up pine forest and higher up alpine, you know, like pure alpine, and then above tree line up to, you know, rocks, and snow and ice and sky. And that was my backyard. And I loved spending time alone as a kid. And so the only option really was to head into the hills. And I did. So I think my int most intimate connection with nature and the aha moment has been really kind of evenly infused throughout my whole life. Okay, and as an artist, I want to ask you about your relationship creatively and spiritually with the land. And I think maybe a good place to start, and I'm going to do my best with this pronunciation, is Antuqua. Ooh, very good. And please correct me if I no, if I botch that. No, for a non-Hopi, that is that's an outstanding pronunciation of the Hopi name for Grand Canyon. So can you talk a little bit about what that is as it relates, not just to the Grand Canyon, the trio that you have on the music side, it, fill everybody in on, on what, what that means, what that is, how it manifests itself in your life. Wow. That is a, that could be a very lengthy answer, but I'll, I'll keep it really short. We can expand on it later. I'm not people, running a watch on people you. People are interested. Uh, so I think it probably starts with a connection to Grand Canyon. And then the next chapter would be connecting to Hopi people. Uh, then it would be um, finding a musical connection to Hopi and Grand Canyon, and then bringing all those elements together to create what's now like an album and a little mini documentary. Uh, and it's just this beautiful project uh, that we ended up calling Angtuka, the Hopi name for Grand Canyon. Um, so to start with connection to Grand Canyon and public lands, my very first experience uh, in Grand Canyon National Park was as a young adult. I was in my 20s. I'd been living in Arizona for a while and had never been there, had never visited. And I was convinced by a friend wow. to go. And so he actually got the permit for me and said, you're going to go to the South Rim. You're going to get on a shuttle. And whatever you do while you're driving, don't look out the window. Don't look at the Grand Canyon. You can't see this place for the first time from behind glass of a van. Don't do it. Okay. So I honored that. I was driven all the way across the Navajo Nation and up to the North Rim of Grand Canyon. And I wandered out through the forest at night, like he told me to, to find a place to camp. And as I did, I was walking along the trail at sunset. And I actually heard the Grand Canyon before I saw it because I was still in the pine trees. And as I was walking, my right ear was facing toward the canyon, although I didn't know it was there. And my left ear was in the pine trees. And the nature of how the sound changed, I felt a vacuum actually happening in the canyon area. There was a void of sound, like a vacuum of sound, whereas the trees were very much alive. So I walked toward the sound, the lack of sound to see for the first time, Grand Canyon, you know, looking down Bright Angel Canyon, like at sunset on the North Rim. It was, I cried, I cried my eyes out. It was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. So I eventually became a backpacking guide in Grand Canyon, worked there for about 10 years, saw almost every trail and lots of off-trail routes inside Grand Canyon. Um, 
around the same time that I was su supplementing my lifestyle with uh, outdoor education and cultural education projects. So it was bringing groups of students from places like Tucson and nearby communities up to the Hopi Reservation for education, uh, cultural interaction, uh, service learning. And so getting to know Hopi people and getting to know this ancient connection between these people who live very close by, who have this incredible connection to Grand Canyon. And then around that same time, uh, a very close friend who I've known for over 20 years uh, is a flute player from um, Seattle, Washington, who's really well known, has 40 some albums to his credit. He's been playing flute, you know, uh, for at least 35 years. Um, he'd been playing a particular style of flute that he thought was the coolest thing he'd ever heard. And at first I, I thought it sounded like a neigh, you know, almost like a Middle Eastern flute, but deep and haunting and spooky. Like this thing sounded really spooky, not like your you know, typical cedar flute like you hear in every gift shop in the West, you know what I'm saying? And I heard he shared this music with me and I thought, whoa, this is heavy. And he knew that it came from an archeological excavation. He was playing a replica of something that was dug up in the 1940s that when found in kind of the current day Four Corners area, when it was found at the time, um, there wasn't really great dating, dendrochronology and radiocarbon and other means of dating back then. So they assumed, oh, some flutes, we've found these before in other archeological excavations. They're probably three to 400 years old because most flutes were. And when they were brought to the U of A decades later and then tested, it turned out that these flutes were like at least 1500 years old, making them the oldest wood and wind instrument in North America that had ever been discovered. Uh, granted, some wood erodes and disappears, but even still old flutes and an old flute tradition that predates what we know about you know, modern North American indigenous flutes, like pushing that back like a thousand years. So this music and these beautiful instruments had been developed and played uh, about 1500 years ago. And so he was curious who made these and what songs did they play? Cause I don't want to just do jazz riffs on these things. I want to be able to find out what were people playing 1500 years ago? Does that knowledge still exist? And as, um, as ethnomusical amateur ethnomusicologist and somebody who's hosted a world music radio show for a couple of decades, like music and cultural connectedness is my life's passion. You know, nature and the outdoors is my life's work, but my passion is in music and culture. So, I told him, Gary is his name, Gary Strautzis. I said, I don't know the answer to all the questions you're asking, but I think I know the guy who does. And it was Clark Tanakongva, who uh, just recently uh, transitioned from being the vice chairman of the Hopi tribe uh, into you know his next phase of life. But before that was a musician and he's been a singer his whole life. And so I thought that if I were to go to tribal council or if I were to go to the cultural committee, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions about cultural sharing, especially as it relates to music and potentially sacred ceremonial music. But a musician talking to another musician speak the same language. So I brought these two guys together uh, so that he could ask a couple of questions about flutes. And the result was incredible. Like I saw Clark's jaw drop and hit the floor the moment he heard the sound. Uh, so that's how the, the project started was bringing this, this sound of this old flute back to Hopi. Um, yeah. Ong Tupwa. Very cool. Now your role in that trio is, is clay percussion. You're the percussionist. And for those of us that know tabla from Rabbi Shankar or jazz from Max Roach or rock and roll from John Bonham and Keith Moon. 
I don't recall, and I am a student of the genre, seeing clay percussion on any of the liner notes of these artists. So again, for the uninitiated, what is clay percussion? Uh, clay percussion is like the great grandfather of all the other drums that we've been listening to, really. I feel like clay has been in clay technology, ceramics have been part of human development uh, in, on every continent. And so as we were using things like clay for carrying water, cooking food, storing grain, uh, they were also used for uh, acoustics and percussion. And one of the, the two most well-known clay uh, pot percussion styles now, one would be people who lived very close to Ravi Shankar. So he came from the north of India, played Hindustani music. In the south, there's Carnatic music, and they play clay pots, these things called gatham. It's a large terracotta pot, and really good potters can fire them just hot and just right to get um, to tune them. So they're actually tuned to drums. So as you strike the outside as well as the big bass note, just like a big you know water pot, you get these beautiful crisp notes. And that's from India, southern part of India. The other clay pot tradition that's pretty common is uh, from West Africa, from Nigeria. Uh, it's an instrument called an udu. So a large clay pot, kind of bell-shaped, mm -hmm. but with a hole removed in the middle. And you strike that hole primarily to push air through this thing. And as the air pushes through, it creates you know beautiful bass notes. And when you're striking, you're using the, the palm of your hand, the flat, the flat part of your hand. Are you using sticks? Or are you using mallets? Or is it just the, the, the tactile sensation of your hand on these various clay pots? Exactly. All the tactile sensation, the pads, the palm, fingertips, knuckles, uh, finger rolls, just like you would do in almost any other drum, but just across clay. And the sound is beautiful. So I'm fortunate enough so, to sit next to the Hopi singer and the uh, flute player uh, to be able to provide earth rhythms is really what we're, what we're doing with um, the flute, his vocals, and with uh, clay pot percussion is producing like earth, sky, spirit is the idea, at least in my mind. I don't think we've ever And do you feel discussion. so... No, but there's, it's so interesting. And by the way, I'm sure if I talk to them, they'd say they were fortunate to be sitting next to you. But I, do you feel, I want to just mine a little bit the territory of your role as a percussionist. Do you feel that, I, I think what you just said is earth, spirit, and sky. So do you feel as the percussionist, as the, as the musician that's sort of grounding the music, that you are the earth in that, in that dynamic? Yeah, very much so. I feel like because of what clay is made from, as well as the sound that it makes, is very earth-centered. It comes from way down deep, actually from underneath the earth. You know, occasionally it might sound like thunder, but a lot of what I'm trying to listen to in nature and then recreate with these, especially in supporting uh, flute and vocals, is big, deep uh, heartbeats of earth tones. Yeah, so I definitely see myself as kind of the, the, the earth element of the three of us. Stay with us. More from Charles and Matthew after the break. Ever wonder why conservation messaging has such a hard time reaching people? So did we, and that's why we started Sustain Music in Nature. 
We take a celebratory approach, showcasing the beauty of public lands through music. Music reaches everyone. Our mission is to make music a force for nature. When you watch one of our National Park music videos or attend a concert out on the trails, our goal is for you to be inspired to enjoy and support these at-risk areas. Public lands belong to all of us, and music is the perfect way to bring this message to everyone. Consider a one-time donation or join our Patreon to help us create exciting programs and musical collaborations that celebrate and protect public lands for all. You can make music a force for nature. Learn more at sustainmusicandnature.org. about Matthew's background in conservation and a brief introduction to clay percussion. Now we'll hear Charles ask about Matthew's own musical influences. And I'm curious, I, I don't want sort of you to come up with names just to placate the question. You know, like I, I think maybe Mickey Hart, or I, I mentioned Rabbi Shankar, which obviously people are familiar with through George Harrison or even Paul Simon's music with Graceland. Yeah. When you were growing up, away from so so we've talked a little bit about the cultural inspiration for you and the spiritual inspiration and the way the land has influenced you but were there certain percussionists or drummers when you were growing like did you have a drum kit were you like a fan of like how'd you gravitate towards this where did it start uh i think i was either requested to or required to play music growing up I don't remember which, but I remember always playing music uh, growing up as a kid, elementary school, middle school, high school, mostly band or instruments and things like that. And I tried a little bit of everything. Like my brother played saxophone. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to play a saxophone, but it didn't really stick. So I tried a variety of things, strings and winds, and eventually found percussion. I was like, finally, this feels right. It's not it's challenging and it's wonderful, but it, it feels right. Like I tried so many different stringed instruments and I have a really hard time with strings, but to be able to play good percussion, to sit next to a talented stringed instrumentalist, like in Indian classical music, I saw that as you know, like the ultimate. Um, but what were you listening to? Like when you were a kid and you were sort of trying, like you wanted to play the sax and everything that you just said in your answer, what what was the music that was on the radio, the stereo, whatever whatever technology you were listening to music? Like, wh who who influenced you? Ooh, um, didn't have radio. Uh, there was actually one radio station that we can listen to, but it only played country and western. Didn't really like either one of those that much. So we listened to a lot of albums and then eventually cassettes at home. And Dad was a lot of classic rock. Neil Young, Beatles, Taj Mahal, listen to a lot of Taj Mahal, stuff like that. And mom was a little bit more Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard. Um, and it really wasn't until my brother started to influence me with weird and out there music and new things that were happening. And I think it really, for me, kind of started with, it might be odd, but Peter Gabriel. But um, when I started listening to Peter Gabriel, uh, I heard all these other global influences. So he was bringing in people like, you know, Baba Ma from Senegal to sing with him and like, amazing percussionists like Manu Kache and and I started to learn about these other artists and then I think Peter Gabriel led me to Kate Bush because they did some work together Kate Bush led me to uh, Australian Aboriginal music 
just from a strange uh, CD that she brought, an album she produced, uh, I think back in the 80s called The Dreaming. And that led me to like didgeridoo and Aboriginal culture, which really like that's where the journey into ethnomusicology really started. No, that's so cool to me because like Manu Kache, Tony Levin, that, that sort of the So album and even some of the world music Peter Gabriel's done since and, you know, Don't Give Up, that duet with Kate Bush. And then I even think, and I, again, I'm not trying to force artists down your throat in terms of influences, but I even think about some of the David Byrne, Brian Eno stuff or the Robbie Robertson stuff as I just think there's such an interesting part of your music that I've heard in other artists where they combine these sounds that are just not your traditional guitar based drums and they invoke i think a much more deeper spiritual relationship to the music and i feel that as a listener so i'm always interested in how artists like yourself come to these sort of you know not not it's a little bit the road less traveled in terms of the stuff that you're doing i think it's just fascinating so yeah it's pretty and, far and out it, there <laughs> yeah but i i mean that's what makes it interesting i and and that to me that's a good segue to the next question i want to ask you because you know you are a renaissance man in many ways and one of the things that you mentioned briefly is your radio show and i i can you just talk a little bit about the show and how it came to be and what a listener would would hear when when they were tuning into your show yeah and i do hope that people will tune in uh, if you live in tucson it's at 91.3 fm uh, and if you're anywhere else in the world you can stream it through kxci.org and i host a program called global rhythm radio it's a two-hour show every thursday at uh, 6 p.m arizona time we don't change time zones so it's always on at 6 p.m arizona time and it's a two-hour exploration of music from around the world Sometimes it's traditional or contemporary or a mix of both. Sometimes we'll spend an entire two hours in a single country or culture listening to a variety of different musicians and uh, people that have contributed to the longevity of the music in that culture. And other times it's a big mix because I love being able to show cultural connections from seemingly unrelated parts of the planet that sound so similar, you know, whether it's through like melodies and phrasing or rhythms or who knows what, but like this international language that is music, being able to present a few hours of that with no English lyrics uh, and very few, I'd say, really hardcore modern instruments like we're used to hearing. So it's a, an opportunity for a lot of those other voices in the world to, to kind of shine through music. So forgive me with labels, but in addition to being a naturalist, and a, and a musician, you're also a curator of music. Yeah, it might be what I do best, I think would be the, yeah, the curation of music. That's I cool. Love, uh, yeah, I do I something similar. Um, yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Um, your relationship to the Grand Canyon over the years, it's sort of, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, the kind of go-to for the average American when they want to sort of do something that's kind of nature. You know, there's a, I, I don't mean this as a negative. There's a tremendous amount of tourism with the Grand Canyon, which always has a threat of commercialization or commoditization. But at the same time, a visit to the Grand Canyon no matter what the original intent was, could change a life because it's such a spiritual place. Can you talk a little bit about 
your thoughts on the Grand Canyon as it relates to how it's changed over time since you first discovered it to now and sort of how you view other people's experiences coming to the Grand Canyon, whether it's pro or con or yeah, that's what I'm going to give you. You run with run with whatever I just said. Take it any way you want. Okay. Um, I think that it's one, Grand Canyon, Ongtupqua, is one of the world's most sacred places. Uh, and I've sought out as many as I could in most continents looking for, you know, beautiful, incredible natural landscapes. And the Grand Canyon remains one of the best. And I think I hear that from people from every country, everybody who ever visits. Maybe not everybody has a transformative experience, but I got to see so many of those when I worked there as a backpacking guide. And the benefit of spending time in nature and hiking through the Grand Canyon is that you get to know it intimately and you feel very small and vulnerable in these giant canyons. It looks very different from the bottom or halfway down than it does from the rim. So I think that I got to see an extraordinary amount of transformative experiences because it was like nature immersion for multiple days. And usually on that last day, emerging out the other side, uh, people's relationship to the place and then almost this unexplainable thing that happened was incredible and emotional. I got to see that over and over and over again. So it was one of the many things that convinced me that this place is really special. And even if you only get there once in your lifetime, it's absolutely worth it, whether it's a view from the rim or a view from the bottom. Uh, but yeah, Grand Canyon is a really, really special place. Granted, it is visited by millions of people each year, and the park does their absolute best to try to keep it uh, well-preserved. But considering the volume of humans that moves through that place, it's, uh, yeah, the, the impact is surprisingly small, especially once you leave the rim. You could walk for five or 10 minutes down a trail and you'll get a nature immersion experience. So your attitude seems to be the more people that come here, the better it is because it's life-changing, it's magical, and we, we can handle the stress of all of the volume. Yes, I do. Which is Which I have to tell you, to me, that's kind of refreshing because to share these lands is sometimes difficult because there is always the fear of, oh, you're too many people that don't hold it as sacred or don't put it with enough um, respect or resonance can, can spoil it. And I think what you're saying is, you know, hey, bring it, come, enjoy it, immerse yourself in it because it'll make you a better person and that'll make the world a better place. Yeah. And I was, I was surprised to hear uh, Clark Tanakongwa, my Hopi friend, say the same thing. It's actually in that, you know, that little Ongtupkwa documentary where he talks about, you know, for people from around the world, like come here, come to Grand Canyon, but you visit this place with respect. This is not just a temple or a holy place. Like this is where Hopi people emerged from into this world. And it's where their souls go when they die. It's not just a pretty canyon. Like this is a living cultural landscape. And being able to hear that and have some of those core values, you know, kind of rein reinforced. Um, you know, the, the burden of educating people on what does it mean to visit with respect, that's what lies in, in front of us. I think not just Grand Canyon, but public lands in general. You know, just the, the teaching, the education of the ethic of not just caring for the land, but realizing that you're part of it, you know, and it's part of you and that the lighter you travel, uh, the better. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm oversimplifying this and I'm almost hesitant to say this, but it's almost like you come for the Instagram picture and then you realize it's a whole lot more than, than just that. Yeah. And if you move a million people through where they step out and get the Instagram picture and they stay on pavement the whole time, that's, that's good management. You know, the trails are hard and they're steep and the wilderness is really rugged. But once you get down into it, like that's where the good stuff is. Grand Canyon National Park looks kind of pretty from the rim. But once you're down inside this beautiful chasm and the hundreds of side canyons that exist in it and the wildlife that, you know, hides out in there, that's when that's when it gets good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's really cool. Uh, I asks, I ask all my guests if there's that one song that that's sort of a go-to song. And I know that you probably thought about that before the podcast. And I always sort of try to not limit the answer. So it doesn't have to be one song, although it, it helps to focus it. And it, it, it can be your own music or it can be something else, but is there sort of one song that's your go-to song in your head when you just want to feel good about nature? I think there's usually a go-to, but I think it changes a lot over time. I don't think I've had one that stays long. I think there's, yeah, it's almost like a jukebox. So where are you at now? If I, so where, what, what's, what's, what is it today? A song. Well, though, what I think, was it yeah, yesterday? Yeah. Lately. And maybe it's because it's, you know, it's December, like winter solstice, short days, cold, you know, a little bit. It's, I mean, I live in Southern Arizona. It is not cold here. I don't think I've needed a jacket more than once this winter, but um, because of, I think the change in light, I listen to a lot more cold music this time of year. So stuff from like Iceland, Scandinavia, uh, really far North and the music, from Sami people, you know, I think growing up, a lot of us called them Laplanders. They're like, you know, indigenous people of Northern Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, kind of that zone. And Lap music or Sami music is what we call it now because Laplander is just a derogatory term. Um, Sami music is vocals and like a shaman's drum, but it's all about the connection to the land and all the songs are often inspired by the landscape northern lights you know things like that so i've been listening to a lot more music from that part of the world but there's one guy in particular uh vime sari w-i-m-m-e-s-a-a-r-i vime sari who sings uh the most brilliant style of yoik this vocal tradition from zombie culture that i've ever heard so that's what's been kind of in my mind uh and, and i'll get a chance to listen to that later today hopefully Matthew Nelson, Executive Director of the Arizona Trail Association, protecting an 800-mile path from the U.S.-Mexico border through Arizona to the Utah border. 
He is a member of Antupwa, as a clay percussionist, a trio that explores the spiritual connection to the land through musical expression, informed by Hopi tradition and culture. Check out their music at ongtupqa.com. And, a fun fact, the group's vocalist, Clark Tanakwangwa, who you can hear right now, recently performed with Yo-Yo Ma on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Songscapes is a production of Sustain Music and Nature. If you like this program, please subscribe, write a review, and give us a follow on our socials at Sustain Music and Nature. If you want to make a donation or are just interested in learning more about what else we do, check out our website at sustainmusicandnature.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, see you out on the trail. Yeah.